Welcome to Pediatric Meltdown, the podcast about children's mental health and emotional well-being. I'm Dr. Leah Gugino, a primary care pediatrician, and I created this podcast for the pediatric medical community and anyone who cares about children's behavioral health. Pediatric Meltdown offers thoughtful conversations featuring experts from the field. Learn practical strategies from the best and become a savvier clinician. Hey listeners, welcome back to another episode of Pediatric Meltdown, and today we have another encore presentation from a very popular child psychologist who did an awesome episode on anxiety and comes back to us to talk about the management of depression. Dr. Colleen Cullinan is a pediatric psychologist at Nemours Alfred I. DuPont Hospital for children in Wilmington, Delaware. She specializes in integrated primary care within the Division of Behavioral Health. Dr. Cullinan completed her Ph.D. in clinical psychology at Western Michigan University in 2015. Dr. Cullinan supervises psychology externs and interns, and she directs medical education efforts for Nemours residency training programs. Her presentation and publication record center around integrated care, family-based interventions, and experiential cultural humility training. Please join me in welcoming Colleen. She is an amazing therapist, and you are going to really enjoy this conversation. Hey, Colleen, welcome back to the podcast. It's so good to be back. Well, I have to tell you that your um, podcast you did on anxiety, I think it was called the three B's of anxiety, was one of the most popular podcasts. So I'm so excited you could come back and talk with us today about depression. So thank you for that. You know, I think with the pandemic that we're all sick of, right, that there's been a lot of discussion about mental health crises. And in fact, the American Academy of Pediatrics and the American Academy of Child and Adolescent Psychiatry declared a mental health emergency for kids. Are are you seeing those same kind of trends in the work you're doing? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think we're all feeling it. You know, I think about when we talked about anxiety a few weeks ago, and I think about that conversation I think depression and all of the sort of mental health crises that we're seeing, you know, it's all the same stuff. It's all just like, it's been so much for everybody. Everybody gets sad from time to time. Everybody gets worried about stuff from time to time. Everybody gets stressed, you know, angry, frustrated, disappointed, hopeless. Those things happen to everybody, but it really just feels like the volume on all of it is so high right now. Like all of those things that have always sort of been at the surface are now just really. And I think we're just tired. You know, the, the human body, the human brain can only sustain so much. And I think we're playing with the edges of what that looks like when we push people too hard for too long, too much stress, prolonged stress, you know, and then prolonged feelings of like, is this going to improve? And I think, you know, adults struggle with that tremendously. And so of course kids do. And I think the struggles look slightly different, which is also, I think really hard as a parent. So I, I mean, I'm seeing it a ton. And I work in primary care, but all of my colleagues across all the specialties of behavioral health are just seeing such a, such an uptick in intensity and acuity. And yeah, the suffering is very real. I think partly, I mean, I just know like from myself, like day to day, it just feels weird. It feels like, gosh, can we go places? When is life going to resume? Will it ever resume? Is there hope? There's feels like there's so much 
anger and irritability and resistance and resentment. So that all just compounds the ickiness. And, and I think, you know, one of the things that in primary care is that we have been screening for depression for a long time. Right now, we maybe don't want to because we just keep finding too much of it, but we're supposed to be doing that right routinely. And when we use tools like the PHQ, and of course, the biggest worry is what do we do when it's a positive? And I think the numbers are showing that we're seeing more positives more often. And, and of course, the worst fear is, do I have a suicidal teen? While suicidal ideation is a part of this, our discussion today, primary talk about depression without suicidal ideation. So we can kind of focus on that maybe a little bit less severe in terms of presentation. So I think we think about depression like hopelessness, helplessness, like nothing's going to ever get better. Is there any way that we can change that narrative? Yeah, I mean, I think you're bringing up something really important, which is even sort of a mind shift for me over these last couple of years. You know, the presence of depressive symptoms or anxiety symptoms or irritability symptoms, that's almost, I almost feel like it's a given. I think it's almost weird now to see a PHQ-9 that's at zero, like, who's sleeping well or eating well, or, you know what I mean? Like who's concentrating, who's, everybody is feeling sad and motivated. Like, so I almost feel like the presence of those symptoms is the norm as opposed to the exception. I think the questions we really need to be asking ourselves as, as providers at this point is, are these symptoms getting in the way of kids being able to do the things they got to do or do the things they want to do or do the things that give their life joy? Is it a thing where I'm sad and it's like, I can't even pick up the phone and text my friends. I can't, I can't get out of bed in the morning to make it to virtual school or to to, to person school. I'm scared. You know what I mean? Is it, is it a thing where not only am I not sleeping well or eating well or exercising well or doing all these things, but I like, it's really just impairing my ability to function. It's impairing my ability to like be cool with my parents. It's impairing my ability to, to do the things I want to do. And some of these things, like you were saying earlier, are beyond our control. I think that uncertainty piece is the worst. We as humans are creatures that crave certainty. We'll invent certainty where we can, like, that's what the human brain has evolved to do is to make uncertain things certain. And when there's that lack of control, it's, it's, it's really difficult. And so I've really shifted away from being really like symptom focused or asking a lot of questions about the specific symptoms and really focusing a lot more like you're saying on sort of the narrative and what are the stories kids are telling themselves about what's safe and what's not safe. Am I okay? Am I not okay? Are my parents okay? Are they not? Like I'm much more interested in that stuff, in the content of the way we're kind of framing the current world situation and the way we're kind of framing the things that are upcoming, the way we're talking about the uncertainty as a family, those are the things I'm focusing on a lot more as opposed to the nitty gritty of the symptoms of depression. Now, of course you brought up suicide. Now that's not going to be our focus today necessarily. When it comes to that, then you do kind of have to go back to (laughs) go back to the like true blue safety planning and those kinds of things. But when it comes to just like negative thinking, when it comes to just some of these other symptoms, I'm much more focused on sort of the process by which kids are, are engaging some of this as opposed to like uh, some of the nine DSM five criteria and are they present in the last two weeks? That's a little bit less. I just kind of assume that everybody's having that across the last few weeks to some degree or another. I don't know if that sort of makes sense, but I think there's lots of ways to assess for that storytelling that kids are doing about what's happening for them. And then, and then trying to use that in a more helpful 
positive way. I can't make the world more certain. That's not my job. I can't, if I could, <laughs> I would, I would do that 1,010%. But I, you know, I think what we can control is sort of, yeah, the way we engage with that narrative or that processing that kids are doing. I, I love that conceptualization. And I think that the focus on function is particularly important. It was interesting. I was just listening to a presentation that a Dr. Chan did on ADHD with comorbidities. And again, it was talking about rather than focusing on the symptoms of ADHD or the symptoms of anxiety or depression, but really focusing on how impairing is that to judge what, whether or not you initiate treatment, whatever treatment you may use, and whether or not it's effective. Yeah. And, and I think that to me, that just makes sense in terms of like practical practice. Yeah. And I think that's what kids want to talk about. You know what I mean? I think that's if, if you're in a visit and you're trying to make the most of your time and you want kids to feel connection, which I think is the most important thing for mental health. And the studies show that feeling some sense of connection is actually one of the most protective things for some of these mental health symptoms that we're talking about. I mean, if that's, I, I would even just be like, wow, this PHQ-9, and then maybe set it aside and be like, what do you think about the way that just went, you feeling that? You know what I mean? I think some of that, and like you're saying, your ability to participate in your life, like that's the stuff that kids and families care about much more than, okay, well, it was a 12 last week and now it's a six. We did a good job. You know what I mean? Like, I think it's much more that, that piece of it. And that piece of connection is actually the most protective thing you can do in a 15 minute visit. I think. Yeah. I think that idea that sort of belonging, being part of something more than yourself. And I think COVID I has impacted that so much, this isolation. I can't, I can't do the things that made my life mm -hmm. feel full and rich because it involved, you know, experiences that typically have other people in them. Yes. And, you know, and that, that just makes it really hard. Well, let's talk a little bit about strategies. And so I think one of the strategies that we all think of as primary care providers is therapy. And probably the one we're most familiar with for depression, anxiety is cognitive behavioral health therapy or CBT. But I know that there's this other modality, activation therapy. Can you talk a little bit about what those are and the differences maybe? Sure, absolutely. So I think you're right when it comes to depression, anxiety, and I think the field is moving more and more towards not being like, okay, there's a treatment for depression, there's a treatment for anxiety, there's a treatment for frustration or irritability or mood, anger stuff. I think we're kind of thinking about it transdiagnostically. There's stuff going on. And I think traditional CBT sort of plays into some of the things I talked about in the anxiety episode that we had um, a little while ago. This idea of our three Bs, that we have a brain that has thoughts and content. We have a body that has feelings and physical sensations. We have behavior, the stuff that we do or don't do. And these three things are playing together all the time. So traditional CBT is saying, okay, these things are playing together all the time and they impact one another quite a bit. If I'm having some sort of physical sensations and anxiety, my heart's beating faster, I'm having a hard time catching my breath, I'm feeling like dizzy or weird or nauseous or whatever. And then I start having thoughts about like, whoa, this is awful. What if this never gets better? What if I'm in a terrible situation? What if I freak out? What if I go crazy? And then the behavior is I get out of the situation, I avoid. So all of these things are, and then they all kind of cycle. They all kind of play together. You could say the same story for depression. You could say something where I'm starting to just feel not great. I haven't been sleeping good. I'm eating junk. I'm on a screen all day. My eyes feel weird. Like I just feel the, 
And then the thoughts are kind of like, you know what? I I love the the feel blah. I usually, I mean, when I'm thinking about it, it is, it is a physical experience. Depression is is too. Depression is too. I mean, it all is. Yeah. It's just this heavy, like, ugh. I know it's like, I can't even describe it because that is how it just, it's just, it is. It's like this feeling inside of just like, uh, gross, just heavy, awful, or everybody has it slightly differently. We'll talk about that, but, but it is, it's like this sensation. And then again, like you're thinking about like, gosh, and what is wrong with me? Or am I just, is nothing ever going to get, I'm a bad person. This isn't going good. Today sucks. Every day sucks. And it probably is going to suck forever. Once we start <laughs> doing that, you know what I mean? And then it's sort of like, you know what, why get out of bed in the morning? Why leave my room? Why text my friend? I can't go see my friend anyway. You know what I mean? And then, and then once we start getting into those cycles, so anyway, CBT, traditional CBT says, okay, we know this. We know that there are these things that are in play all the time. We also know that the way the human body and brain works, it's impossible, or it just has never been successful for people to just snap on and off their feelings. I can't just change my physical sensations immediately. I can't just be like, you know what? I'm sad. Never mind. I want to be happy. Flip the switch. I'm good. We don't have that power as human beings. CBT suggests maybe we have some power over some other pieces of this this kind of cycle, this kind of triangle of the bees that we're talking about here. Maybe what we have some control over is how we think about stuff. Maybe we can change our thoughts. Maybe we can change our behaviors. And the idea is we make some changes on a couple of pieces of this cycle, then the rest will sort of fall into place. If I can change the way I think about stuff, and if I can change stuff I'm doing, then maybe I'm going to get some some movement on the way I'm physically and mentally feeling as well. So that's the idea behind CBT. And a lot of traditional CBT interventions are designed to change those things, change my thought patterns change my behaviors. And so a lot of interventions are like, okay, the thoughts you're having, are those really rational thoughts? Is, is, is the worst thing going to happen? Is it going to be horrible? Like, and, and the, the emphasis on the cognitive strategies in traditional CBT usually is about, can we change the content of the thoughts? Can we reduce the content of the thoughts? Can we argue with it? Can we rationalize it? Can we provide counter evidence? Can we change the content so that you will feel differently? And if you feel differently, things will be better. Like we'll just kind of start to move the circle in a different direction. There is a wave of therapies. Um, It's called third wave behavior therapies, but the one I'm really been the most interested in, I guess, since I was in graduate school is a subsect of therapy called acceptance and commitment therapy. So acceptance and commitment therapy is a part of the CBT family, or it claims kind of residence with the CBT family, but it suggests that actually when it comes to the CBT thing, trying to change what we think, trying to change the content of our thoughts, trying to argue with it or rationalize it or, you know, trying to alter the content is not a really helpful process. The human brain is actually not super good at that. Maybe it's actually not super helpful to try to change the content. Maybe what we should be trying to change is our relationship with the way we think about stuff. Maybe what we should try to change is our perspective on the content that's coming from this thing that is our brain. Our brain is constantly generating content. And just like I talked about when we talked about anxiety, that content is just happening all the time. Our brain is trying to protect us. It's trying to do stuff. It's trying to solve problems. Our brain is constantly moving, 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 generating stuff, saying things in an effort to solve problems. But not all problems are fixable, like, like 
not all problems are solvable, especially with our thoughts and our feelings. That's not really, those aren't fixable things in the same way that I could fix my car if it was broken, in the same way that I could go to the Apple store and fix my phone if it was broken. If I'm having thoughts that aren't helpful, I can't just step in there and fix them, change them, alter them, tell them they're wrong. And in fact, that might be counterproductive, especially I think with kids, you know, and, and I'm sure if you're a parent, this happens all the time where your kids will say something like, I'm so stupid. I'm so ugly. This is awful. The world is a terrible place. It's never going to get better. This is the worst. And you as a parent say, no, it gets better. Like when you get older, it gets better. Things get easier. You're beautiful. You're a beautiful child. You're so talented. You're so good at so many things. And how many times do parents do this with kids? And what do kids do? They go, oh, cool. You're right. Thanks. <laughs> I'll just move on and be great. That's never the way it works. That's not the way human brains work the brain kind of snaps into, no, that's not, that's not true. We start, when you start to argue, it's counterproductive. And so acceptance and commitment therapies are really about, can we change that whole thing? Because that whole thing is actually only increasing human suffering, that whole like back and forth. And is it good and think positive and look at the good side and the silver lining, like all of that actually only continues to activate some of this like uh, need for fixing and control that's actually just not super helpful. And so I think especially now, and I can only speak for myself, but especially now, these more acceptance-based strategies just feel more real and more genuine. They've been more helpful for me personally to like get through stuff where I'm not just like, you know what, stop thinking about the bad stuff, think about the good stuff. I just find it's much more like real and respectful of your internal experience and your history to kind of try to change your relationship with some of that as opposed to the content of it itself. And we can get into what that means, but I, but I think that's, that's really the differences in my mind between like traditional CBT, which isn't a bad thing. And you know what, some kids really do benefit from like the think positive and look at the evidence of your thoughts. And I think that's like kind of a nice holdover sometimes for other stuff to kind of come into play for kids to be able to connect and do that functional piece much more. But I, but I just think, especially now in these times where there are so many unfixable problems and so many uncertainties, trying to make it more certain with like logic just isn't helpful. So just for listeners, can you kind of like the example that you gave with the, I'm so stupid, I'm so ugly, it's never going to get better. And what would, what would acceptance therapy, how would, how would that counter that? It's, it's a great question. And I think, you know, acceptance and commitment therapies are really experiential therapy. So I hope we can talk about some specific like examples and interventions and things like that, because I think that's actually the best way to talk about it with kids or explain it. But for our purposes, just, you know, for like an intellectual explanation, what that means is instead of me getting into, no, I'm not ugly. No, I'm, I'm actually really pretty. And I, people talk to me and I have friends and, you know, instead of getting into that, it would be like, whoa, my brain just fed me the thought that I'm ugly. And approaching that with some curiosity, approaching the fact that I've got a brain that gives me a lot of stuff. <laughs> my brain tells me stuff all the time. My brain tells me stuff about what I'm supposed to do today. My brain tells me about how I'm supposed to get to work. My brain tells me things about how I should dress based on the weather. My brain tells, but then my brain also tells me a bunch of other random stuff too. My brain, sometimes when I'm driving my car, my brain does a thing sometimes where it goes, what would happen if you just like drove off this bridge right now? Sometimes my brain tells me stuff that's like, whoa, what if I tripped down the stairs and broke 
all the bones in my body and I die. And those are thoughts that flash across my brain. That just like happens sometimes. It happens to everybody. I don't have to get into a whole thing about that. Like, I don't have to be like, whoa, I almost just, I had a thought that I could drive off this bridge. I must be suicidal. If I'm suicidal, then what's the point? Like, and then doing some sort of thing. Sometimes our brain generates stuff and we can just be like, whoa, that was weird. <laughs> like, that's weird that my brain just gave me that. Sometimes we can look at our thoughts from the perspective of an observer instead of like someone who has to be in a battle. Do you know what I mean? Like, I think sometimes, you know, there's so many problems in this world that we approach, like it's me versus the problem and the problem needs to be fixed and I'm going to fix it and blah, blah, blah. And I think we think about that for our internal experience as well, but I think it's a lot healthier potentially to be able to be like, you know what? I don't have to buy every single thought that I have. I don't have to buy into the super positive ones and I don't have to buy into the super negative ones, or I can at least like take a minute and try to create some distance between me and some of the thoughts that have the most emotional valence for me. I don't know if that sort of makes sense. Well, yeah. in listening to, I mean, it's, it's kind of like naming, it almost sounds like what happens in meditation, you know, yeah. like these thoughts are going to pop in your head. And I, I was just doing one this morning and it was like, okay, label that thought. Is it thinking? Is it a worrying thought? And just let it go which, you know, of course, sometimes it's not that easy to do, but it, it sounds a little bit like that. It, yeah. I mean, acceptance and commitment therapy and all of like the third wave behavior therapies, you know, I'm sure there's like lots of different perspectives on this, but sort of steal a lot from Eastern philosophy, like sort of steal a lot from steal is probably a strong word, but borrow uh, some of these concepts from like Eastern philosophy and Eastern religions, because I think there's a lot of evidence that actually being able to do some of that is really helpful for the brain and not just helpful from like a, I feel better perspective, but helpful from a, if I'm not in a battle, then maybe I can do something else perspective. Do you know what I mean? If I'm not having a war between all of the different thoughts that I'm having in my mind, or I'm not trying to like figure out, are they true? Or are they not true? And if they're true, what does it mean? And what do I do next? And blah, blah, blah. If I'm not playing that game, then I can, then I can text my friend. <laughs> then I can get up and go for a walk. Then I can like engage with other stuff. Cause I'm not so tied into the battle. Um, so an example, sometimes I give to kids is I think about like, okay, if you take all of like your negative, worried, anxious, depressed, angry, whatever thoughts, feelings, all of that. And you think about that as a beach ball. And I tell you, hey, your job is to submerge that beach ball under the pool water. You're in the pool. I want you to get that ball under the water. And you're at a pool party and you're like, I don't really want to do that. And I'm like, nope, that's what I need you to do. That's what we do with beach balls. We push them under the water. And so you do it. You're trying to push. You're trying to push. You're trying to push. While you're pushing, you're like struggling. You're struggling. You're struggling. You're trying to get the ball under the water. And it's never going to go. Like it's never going to be submerged entirely. It's never going to be under, or maybe you do it. Maybe you do it for like five seconds, but then it's going to pop back up again. I made up this rule that we needed to submerge the beach ball. Maybe we don't, <laughs> maybe, <laughs> maybe we don't, maybe we could just have the beach ball sit in the pool. Maybe we could like let it be in there. Maybe we don't have to do that with the beach ball. And my real question is while you're trying to submerge the beach ball 
under the water. What are you missing at the pool party? Because I told you to do that. And now what are, what are you missing out on? Because you're so obsessed with submerging this beach ball, which I told you that's what you should do. But because you're so obsessed with submerging this beach ball, you're missing out on the snacks and the friends and the music and the sun and the, the you know volleyball that's happening in the corner. You're missing out on all this other cool stuff that's happening because you're so into the beach ball. Can we not play that game? Because I just don't even know if you can win it, honestly. Do you know what I mean? It's a game that's going to be exhausting. Can we just set the beach ball down? And like, at least, at, at least, you know, maybe it's not going to leave our eye line, but can we do other stuff? Because I really think that's what's at the heart of some of those more cognitive interventions and in acceptance-based therapies is in the service of, can we do something different? Can we do something? Because that's what's at the heart of like behavioral activation. Another component of traditional CBT is like doing something. That's the behavioral piece of CBT. And so, you know, I think there's a lot of different ways to do this thing where you create some distance so that you're not constantly like trying to lay down on this beach ball, which is like an impossible, frustrating task in and of itself. It sounds like it one buys you some relief and it also lets you, it's not like you're ignoring it, but you sort of are setting it aside and not giving it as much weight or notice. Do I have that right? Yeah, I think so. And I mean, you know, again, I think sometimes it's like the stories or the metaphors or the the exercises are the best way to really get it across. But I think it is this idea of like, I don't know, I, I always, I the other example I use is like horror movies. I really like horror movies. Like I really like scary movies, but I know there are a lot of people who don't, but there's like a really different way to engage with something like a scary movie, a scary movie that you watch by yourself in the dark, in the basement, in the middle of the night, there's a storm outside. That scary movie that you're seeing for the very first time, you're going to jump a million times. You're going to be so scared. It's like you've created the scariest thing and you're like totally zoned in on the horror movie. But you know what? If you watch that same horror movie again in the daylight, in the middle of the day, in the sunshine, you watch that same horror movie again in your bedroom with all your stuff and like, you know, your comfort items or whatever. You watch that movie again with your mom. You watch that movie again and again and again and again. It's not going to be scary in the same way. It, the way you engage with it is really what's going to dictate how you feel about it in some ways. And that's what's that's what's at the heart of acceptance and commitment therapy. It's not that I'm saying, let's try to break the TV and slam your iPad on the floor and see if we can get rid of the horror movie and turn it off. It's more like, can we get to a place with some of this where the horror movie's playing in the background, but you're eating pizza with your friends? Can we do some version of that? Because I think that is just like a more realistic and re respectful, honestly, because we all have this stuff to some degree or another. I think where it becomes impairing is where we feel like we need to lock ourselves in the darkest, scariest room and have the horror movie, you know, just like be zoned in on it. Can we not do that? Can we see it for what it is and do other stuff? And so I talk about like the horror movie, I talk about the beach ball and I, and I, and I think it's all, all of that is sort of to try to convince kids to do some of this distancing stuff and acceptance and commitment therapy. It's called diffusion. Oftentimes we are fused with negative thoughts. We are fused with the stories that we tell, meaning we are, we are like, we rigidly adhere to them. We believe them to be true. And I just think it's really disrespectful, not disrespect, that's too strong, I guess, but I just think it's not kind of honest to be like, mm, that story is not true. <laughs> that story is just not right. Like, I think it's much more realistic to be like, you know what, that story has been with you for a long time. Um, 
and I don't think I can take it away or erase it or, or block it out or tell you it's not here, it's not true. But I think there may be different ways to look at the story. I think there are maybe different ways to engage with that. And even me calling it a story, I mean, you got to be a little careful because you don't want to make it sound like like it's not a genuine thing. But I, but I think it's like this is what this is what I want to try to do is start to make the brain a storyteller, to make the brain a content generator, to make the brain, like you were saying, something that just like puts out stuff. And sometimes that stuff's helpful and sometimes it's not, you know, and we don't have to engage with all of the stuff equally. We don't have to. We could we could do something different. It's almost like is this serving me? You know, is this serve me well or not? Oh, yeah. And can yeah. I put it, can I put it aside if it's not particularly helpful? Totally. Um, so I'm listening. It's so interesting, and it's so fun to listen to you talk. And I, can I make an a, ther- a therapy appointment with you? <laughs> <laughs> I love it. So one of the strategies that we learn in in the medical realm is motivational interviewing to try and change behavior you know, especially when we're thinking about like smoking or um, drinking. And I think about like with depression, would I use motivational interviewing? I can see thinking about it in talking to somebody like, on the one hand, I get the way you're feeling. You'd just like to pull up the blanket over your head and stay in bed. And that's where you, because it's, that's where you feel like you need to be. On the other hand, you also want to be with your friends and you have so much fun when you do blah, blah, blah. How can we get you from one to the other? Are there some tiny steps? So in my head, I'm thinking, okay, that that's what kind of one of the strategies we learn. Are there any overlaps? I mean, that's a very doing oriented, Mm -hmm. that's a, a behavior thing, right? Yeah. I mean, I think, I think it, I think motivational interviewing, which again, kind of comes out of, like you're saying, substance use treatment, which is a very sort of acceptance based. Um, I think they, they are grappling with the same kinds of folks who are um, professionals in that area are grappling with these same kinds of things, which is like, we can't erase your history or who you are, but, but we can do things different. So I think motivational interviewing comes out of like a similar sort of idea or tradition around acceptance. But I think what you're saying about, you know, I had a I had a professor in graduate school who taught about motivational interviewing and and he would always say, like, really, though, you can't you can't have a dog in the fight when you do motivational interviewing. Like you can't kind of trick. It's not a trick. Motivational interviewing is not a trick. Like you can't just trick people and be like, I don't care if you smoke or not. But like, what do you think? Like, it's not if you care, you care. You know what I mean? Like, so you can't do it if that's how you're. And that's why I think depression is a really good. Um, zone for some of those kinds of interventions, because it's not about me. It really is, or, or it shouldn't be. It really should be about like, look, what's the stuff that you care about? What's the stuff that you're missing? What's the stuff that you really think is going to bring you joy? What are you losing out on because you're fighting with the beach ball? What are you losing out on because you're so fused and attached to some of these other things? And can we move one step closer to that stuff? So I do think where you can get in trouble with some of that is if you're like, you know what, you're not exercising at all. You're not getting out of your room. Your screen time is like 15 hours a day. So we got to change that. All right. What's one step you can do to change your screen time? And kids will be like, I, what? I don't, you don't know. So I really think if you're going to do some of those kinds of interventions, which I do think are really powerful, it is important to ground them in what is this kid's values and what is it that's actually going to make them like rethink where they're at with stuff. Because I think like, it's really easy for me, especially as an adult to be like, whoa, 
you're on your screen all day and that's bad for you. Like, and that's true. Like that's, that actually is real. But if I say that I'm kind of, now we're not on the same page, but if I say something like, you know what, I know, like you were saying earlier, I know that there are days you wake up and you're just like, I don't even want to do this. I don't want to get out of bed. I don't want to put clothes on. I don't want to, I just want to like curl up and be in here and not deal with stuff. And that's real. Like those feelings are, are real. Instead of me trying to be like, well, that's not good for you and you just got to do it. Can I take like sort of a more compassionate approach and be like, you know what, that's there and that's real. Instead of getting into all of those feelings and all of those thoughts, like, can we just think about what is the stuff that you've been missing out on because you haven't been getting out of bed? Or what is the stuff that brought you joy before some of these feelings came in? And is there anything that you and I can work on together to think about what's one step towards that stuff that matters? You know, do I think that if kids got out of bed and got up at exactly the same time every day and put down their screens, they would feel better? Yep, I do think that. But I've been in this a long time. And in the last two years, even more, me saying that to a kid is not helpful. (laughs) Like me saying that to a teenager, like, hey, you know what would help? Don't be on your phone all day. That's just not helpful. And I think it's much more sort of like grounded in what people want to talk about to be like, you know what? Hey, what's one thing you could do today that would be a thing that would bring you connection? What's one thing you could do today that would be healthy for you? What's one thing, can we make your values a verb? Can we take the stuff that matters to you? You love being on your phone. You love TikToks. Like you love, you know, watching all these videos. Can we make one step towards you making a video? Can we make one step towards you texting a friend and asking what their video favorite video is? Can we take, can we, can we have you watch a TikTok with your mom and she's going to think it's lame, but like, whatever, it gets you out of your room for a minute and whatever. Do you know what I mean? Like finding the, the nugget of what matters to kids and what matters to kids probably is not TikTok. It's probably the creativity that's associated with TikTok. It's probably like, wow, there's someone making something and that's kind of cool. Or it's probably something like, you know what, they're moving their bodies. Maybe I should move my body, you know? And I think just like trying to find the things inside of this stuff that actually matter to kids. And that's how you convince them to be like, let's take one step in that direction, not 30 steps, but you know what? You, you could give up like 10 minutes of today to try to do something different. If you could do one thing different for about 10 minutes, anything you pick, what's one thing you would do different? Maybe it'd be in that 10 minutes. You'd you'd take a shower. Maybe in that 10 minutes, you'd call a friend. Maybe in that 10 minutes, you'd go help your mom with dinner. Maybe in that 10 minutes, you'd open your window and get some fresh air. Like, I just think that trying to connect it to something that kids actually want to do instead of what I want them to do, is just going to move it again in a more productive, helpful direction. Yeah. I, my head is spinning thinking about (laughs) it in some ways in thinking about, you know, like suicidal um, ideation, safety planning does a lot of, you know, like when you're thinking about distractions, you know, is there something that helps take your mind off something you enjoy? And it's interesting in doing safety planning with people. That's often when their mood lightens a minute when they do think about something like, yeah, I like watching stupid cat videos. You know, that makes me laugh. And they almost you see it as they're talking about it. It's it is an experience that is truly that way. Well, what are some strategies that, you know, when kids can't really talk about what they're feeling? I mean, how do you help understand or help them understand 
about the feelings because they might just be caught up in the blah. <laughs> They're just yes, like, I, I just don't, I just don't feel good. I, you know, cause what do kids say about a lot of stuff? I don't know. Right. So how, oh, how totally. can you, can, I mean, because it sounds like naming things can be helpful, but if I don't know what I feel, how do I name it? No, totally. And I think you're a hundred percent on it, which is oftentimes when kids are sort of faced with some of these questions about, well, what are you thinking or what are you feeling or what is the content or what is your brain giving you? And kids go, well, I don't know. Or like, you know, they're just, they either don't want to, or they, or they can't. Sometimes it is. It's really hard to find. Even as an adult, I struggled, right? I was like, well, it feels like that. It doesn't feel, you know, so it's really hard sometimes to describe, but actually getting some of that content from inside the brain to the outside is in and of itself an intervention. So I do think it's worth not just leaving the, I don't know, on the floor or not just leaving like the little out there. Like, I think it's worth asking some questions. So what I try to do with a lot of kids or what I've been really successful with, I guess, in the last like couple of months is trying to get kids to physicalize the feeling or the experience or the emotion. So what I mean by that is, and this is a very popular intervention in acceptance and commitment act, acceptance and commitment therapy, which is to say, okay, this feeling that you're having or these thoughts that you're having, tell me, what do they look like? What color are they? What if you could, if, if it was a shape, what shape would it be? Is it a human figure? Is it an animal figure? Is it a shape? Is it a mist? Is it a, what is it? What's the texture? What does it feel like? How big is it? How small is it? How loud is it? How quiet is it? What does it sound like? Does it have a voice? Does it make noise? Does it say stuff to you? Is it yelling at you? Is it whispering in your ear? You know, and you can go through all the senses. You can talk about like, what does it smell like? Does it have an odor? Does it smell rotten? Does it smell like gasoline or like um, something burning? Or does it smell, I don't know, does it smell like old food? Does it smell like, you know, gross, wet stuff? Like, what does it smell like? What does it feel like? What does it sound like? What does it look like? What, what's what your, I, I love this. It's just so, <laughs> I mean, because as you're saying it, I'm like feeling what you're saying. I mean, it's like, oh, I can relate to that. So what, what do kids say? I mean, do they, do they get it? Yeah. Well, and you know, sometimes you're going to have kids who are just like, I'm not here for this. <laughs> like I just, you know, but, <laughs> That's I, stupid. but I do think like part of what you're doing too is taking something that feels so serious and so unspeakable and so awful. And even if it's not going great, you're lending some levity to it, which again, changes the relationship with the content. And that's what we're trying to do. And I think it is hard to like talk that out, but I think if you do this thing of like, okay, what is it? So I I had a patient a couple of months ago, a girl who was just like really sad and just like really sad, like flat. And, and we just weren't getting very far. And, And so I said like, Hey, let's try this. I know it's hard for you to describe what you're thinking when you're feeling sad. I know it's hard for you to tell me like what's running through your brain when you're feeling really down, but we did this whole thing. What would it look like? What would it feel like? What color, what shape, what form? And as we were getting into it, she was like, okay. I was like, does it have a shape? And she was like, I don't know. I was like, is it a human? And she was like, no. And then we kind of kept going back and forth and she's like, it's a blob. And I was like, okay, it's a blob. What color? And she was like black. And I was like, it's a big blob or a little blob. She was like, it's big and it's got, it's got like a big shadow and it just feels like it's looming over me. And I was like, what does it feel like? Like what is, when you, if I reached out and touched it, what it'd be like, she was like sticky, sticky and almost like, like, like syrup or tart, like sticky and 
thick and, you know, just gross. And I was like, does it smell? And she was like, yeah. And we kind of got to this place of like, it was this big, like black tar blob, sticky blob that was just kind of hovering over her. And she knew if it actually touched her, it would like swallow her, smother her. And it was just like this looming, you know, and even as I'm saying it right now, like, I'm sure you have an image of what this is. Right. And so, you know, as we're doing this again, we're taking out some of the punch of depression. And I was like, what is its name? Give me a name. And she called it pathetic. She called her big black tar blob pathetic. And then that's what we called it from then on. And we still call it that. But I've had kids say awesome stuff. I've had kids say, you know, its name is Bob. Its name is, you know what I mean? Like, why not? Why not? And that's the point. The point is there's stuff that our brain generates all the time, but we have some power in generating other stuff. We have the power to change the way we look at it and think about it and feel about it. And now if we've got big blob monster pathetic. Now we can just talk about it. And I could say, Hey, where's pathetic at right now? Is pathetic looming over you? Is pathetic like about to swallow you up? Or did you take a couple of steps back from pathetic today? You know, or is pathetic there, but you're still kind of doing your stuff. You're going to school, you're seeing your friends, you're playing soccer, you're, you're going out with your mom, like pathetic is there, but it's not actually swallowing you up. You know, like we can talk about it now in a way, again, that can be so much more like helpful and healthy. And again, I think, you know, she picked pathetic, but I actually think it's the best when kids can kind of make it funny or make it silly or make it like, you know, that's actually the best stuff. These distancing diffusion exercises are the most fun when they're fun. Like it's, it's, and that's all good. Yeah. It's hugely creative. Yeah. I mean, it's, and it's based almost in play. That there's this, and and it, because it's, you can kind of manipulate it and yes. you can say, well, you know, I'm going to leave it. I left Bob. I, Bob <laughs> annoyed me today. I'm not dealing with Bob. I mean, it it's, it's such an interesting way of sort of like, you feel like you almost like pull it out of you and, and it becomes something distant yeah. rather than inside. Exactly. Exactly. I think that's a hundred percent it. And I think it's like, you know, my goal is not to make Bob disappear. Bob has been with you probably your whole life. You know what I mean? And if I asked Julia, I said, like, think about the darkest things that you have about yourself. That stuff has been with you probably since you were a child. You know what I mean? It's been with me since I was a child. I could, I could probably describe my monster. You know what I mean? Very easily. And that's not going to just go away. So the goal isn't to be like, now we're going to murder the monster. Like, that's not what we're trying to do. But it is like, hey, yeah, can we just like separate a little bit or look at it differently as opposed to, you know, constantly avoiding it? Avoidance is really at the heart of all mental illness, in my, in my opinion. Maybe not, maybe mental illness is not the right framing, but suffering, you know, mental suffering is avoidance, avoidance of stuff. And we avoid so much and we try to avoid the internal. We try to avoid the feelings we don't like. We try to avoid the thoughts we don't like. We try to avoid the memories we don't like. We try to avoid the experiences we don't like, but that's who we are. That's the stuff of who we are. We cannot avoid it. And I'm not saying we got to go live in it, but like, can we acknowledge that that's the reality for us? And then can we like do stuff with our behaviors that helps, helps us to have a life that's more meaningful and joyful? Yeah, it's, I love this discussion again, because for me, hearing it, it is just so tangible. I mean, there's a kind of a, I don't know, a, a feeling to it 
that is very different than, you know, how likely am I to drive my car off the road? And eh, not very likely, you know, that challenging, thought. it's, it is more interesting to be yeah. honest. Well, in this whole conversation that we're having, acceptance and commitment therapy would have like a name for it. It's called creative hopelessness. So it's, so you use the word creative. Yeah. You use the word, you didn't even know you used the word creative earlier because it is, it's a creative process. And it's this, the hopelessness is at the back of it because it is this idea of like, look, we can't change who you are. We can't change your history. I can't change COVID. I can't change racism. I can't change, you know, I human individual me, I can't change all of those things, those things. So that can be hopeless, but is there a creativity in the way that I look at it or I approach it? or the things that I do, or the things that I say, can we have fun with it? You know, if we can drill down to something like pathetic, and pathetic is at the core of how I feel, and it feels really bad. Can I think about my pathetic monster? Can I, can I say more about what pathetic is? And can I say it in a way, can I say it super, super fast? Can I say it really, really slow? Can I say it as part of a TikTok dance? Can I, can I change my relationship with pathetic so that I can live my life, not so that I can eliminate it, but so that I can like, you know, be a, be a human like in this world with relationships, because I could drown in pathetic if I let myself, you know, I think that's really what we're, we're trying to save kids from. It's, it's interesting. I was thinking about, I've mentioned this multiple times on the podcast because it so struck me. So at the very beginning of the pandemic, Bessel van der Kolk, who wrote The Body Keeps the Score about trauma, talked about the pandemic, I mean, who knew that it was going to be almost two years, right? That he talked about the pandemic as as a trauma. And he said, here are the things that help people manage trauma. And he listed these seven things. And it was kind of creating routine and and kind of, and they are doing things. They were nutrition, sleep, movement, creativity and play, Mm -hmm. family, social, and spiritual. But they were sort of like things that you have control over. I don't have control over this pandemic. I don't. I mean, I have some control in that I could get a vaccine. I can wear a mask. I can be careful about where I go. Those are things I do have control over, but I don't have control over all everybody else. But if I do these, I do have some control over these other things that I can do, maybe not all at the same time. And it sort of felt like, you know, again, this, what does COVID feel like? What is it? You know what I mean? Of course, it's different if you're acutely ill and hospitalized. And that's not what we're talking about. We're talking about dread, suffering, you put it. Does that in any way kind of cross over? I mean, those are actually, you know, behaviors that you're doing. Right. I love it though, because I think, I think those are different areas and there are ways you could put those and make them into values. So values in acceptance and commitment therapy is this idea that there are some things that we strive towards that we're never going to achieve. Like we're never going to be like, now I'm done. Now I am healthy. Done. (laughs) Now I am. Now I am active. Done. Now I have good relationships. Done. Like values are sort of these things that we are always sort of moving towards. And again, they give our like richness. But I think the examples of some of the things that you said, like connection, creativity, social play, health, like, you know, sleeping and eating and and drinking water and all of those things, those are all behaviors, but I think they're rooted in values. And I think when you root, so I would, I would say like, if you had that list in front of you and you showed it to a kid and you said, look, which one of these feels the most authentic and important to you? 
which one of these feels like something that connects to you as a person, pick one and then let's set a goal. A goal is, can you move one step closer to this than you did yesterday? That's what's really, so I'm certainly, I'm not in a zone of like, don't have goals, but I think they should be grounded in the stuff that matters to kids. And so that list that you gave is beautiful. And what I would do probably is say, Hey, here's some stuff that matters to a lot of people. And a lot of people who feel like their joy, their joy is back, or a lot of people who feel like their life is like meaningful and moving in the direction they want it. This is stuff that they've tried that's worked. Does any of this stuff feel like it connects with you? Does any of this stuff feel like stuff that you used to actually really feel good about and you don't anymore? But like, could we, could we do an experiment and just try? Because I think those are the ways that you get kids to kind of want to do stuff and want to do it in a way that's actually like connected to their experience. Well, and I think it's not even. I mean, not just kids. I mean, all of oh, us want, I mean, we all want, we all want to do what we want to do when we want to right. do it. Right. I mean, right. And so it's much more appealing to me to do something that means something to me. And it's interesting. I did an interview with Dr. Dworkin and he talked about child transformational health and, you know, these big ideas. And I said, well, what's some takeaways? Because, you know, it's like basically like, how do I change the world? which feels big. And he said, ask parents what matters to them and let them direct you to where you take the visit. So, you know, in, I I think in our visits, we have all the anticipatory guidance, which there's like, you know, 22 things, you know, about safety and all these things. But to ask them, we could talk about feeding, we could talk about sleeping, we could talk about pooping, we could talk about a lot of things. What matters to you? Because I don't need to waste my time on the stuff that you don't care about. Well, right. Yeah. And I mean, again, and I, I'm not a pediatrician myself, but I kind of feel like, you know, we don't actually know how helpful it is to tell kids to wear their bike helmets or drink milk. Like we don't have the data that's like this anticipatory guidance super, super matters. But there's a lot of data that shows that when people are more invested in the conversation, they're more likely to do the thing that you say. And so I think that what you're saying is really, really important. And so it's not to like poo-poo on all the other anticipatory guidance. I think all of that's really important stuff. And you should tell kids to wear their bike helmets. So I'm not trying to say like, don't do that. But I think <laughs> I if you that. can, <laughs> I think if you can slot in what you're talking about and just be like, Hey, I've got a lot of stuff that I want to talk about today, but like, what's the stuff that, that you want to talk about? Or again, like when you're done looking at that PHQ nine to be like, wow, you filled out a lot of stuff here. What was that like for you? Or what do, what do you think is the most important thing for me to take away from this piece of paper? You know what I mean? Like, as I look at this, I can see, wow, you checked a lot of stuff or you checked like half the stuff or whatever. What did, what did, what does that mean? Or how did you feel filling this out? Or what do you want me to talk to you about in this questionnaire? I think right. that's how you move. Yeah. I think the language I've used sometimes, and maybe it's that sort of physicalizing is, God, this really looks like you don't feel very good. Do I have that right? And, you know, people can relate, you know, again, because a lot of these mood things do have a physical sensation. I mean, they truly, I mean, I've had some experiences where I felt, you know, sad and depressed and I, I, I couldn't, I couldn't articulate other than to say, I don't feel good, but you know, maybe I could articulate, well, it's a blob. What's that feel like? I mean, I, to be able to describe it like you had is much more interesting. It also gives you a little power. Because I can, it's not like I've just given it up and it feels awful and I can't do anything, but I have this power to be able to describe it. And that sort of changes the experience. Totally. I mean, I think that's, that's the goal. That's the dream actually, is what you just did, which is like, if you think about the worst thoughts you've ever had or the worst fears, your worst sadnesses, and now you're using words like interesting, 
and empower, you know what I mean? To have power. Like, again, you're changing your relationship. I'm not getting into the nitty gritty of like, is it true or not true? Or like, no, you're great. Like, you're not a bad person. You're a great person. But I can, but now you can look at it differently and be like, oh, there's something interesting inside of this. Or there's something that maybe I could, there's something empowering about it potentially. There's something unique about my history and my thoughts and my experience. I don't know. That's such a cool, there's so much more freedom in that and flexibility in that. And like the ability to be like, maybe it is worth getting up in the morning when you can look at the darkest stuff and be like, there's something interesting inside of that. Wow. Like what, a, what you're right. It is. It's like freedom. I think when you say power, I think of it more like, whoo, it's like a weight right. off relief. Well, and I think it, it is that it feels like it combats hopelessness because it's like, mm-hmm. well, it's not entirely hopeless because I mean, I can think of circumstances where it is so crushing and the reality of what, you know, my house just burned down or I lost everything in a flood or my family died. I mean, there are things that are crushingly real, but with, with depression, it's not necessarily because of a bad experience. Mm -hmm. I mean, I think those are kind of two different things. Yeah. Um, Yeah. But I mean, I think, you know, at the core of it, it's a lot about how you experience it. I mean, that's what PTSD really is. It's not the experience of having a trauma. It is then what happens next. Do you know what I mean? It's it's, It's reliving it. Right. Exactly. Or the way you relate to it, honestly, the way you relate to that experience is what is sort of predictive of what happens next or the way it manifests and is impairing or not, you know? So I think it's really, again, naive and maybe like insulting to be like, hey, don't be sad. Whoa, it is like a sad time to be alive. I feel sad all the time. You know what I mean? Like not all the time, but I feel it. I feel that there's a lot of sad stuff that I see in this world and on the news and you can't shield kids from that and you can't erase it or pretend it doesn't exist. That's actually probably not a cool way to be. But Sounds it like avoidance. <laughs> right? And and what's 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 hard about avoidance is avoidance is isn't a workable thing. Like avoidance doesn't work. You can't avoid. You you can try and it works in the short term a little bit, but in the long term it's what perpetuates these feelings, you know? And so, yeah, I mean, I think there is something different and again, this is why I don't, I don't usually with kids get super locked up in the why or the content. Like I don't super get locked up in the, like, what happened to you that you feel this way? Like, I don't really get into that necessarily. And I'm much more interested in like, whoa, this is happening and it feels really real. Can we change the way you're relating to it? Can we, can I, can we try some thought experiments and just see what happens? Can, can it, we, what yeah. about, I'm thinking about in my head, I'm thinking about trauma in terms of, you know, kids that have had adverse traumatic experiences and, and, you know, those really bad and scary things happen that you can't change, you can't undo. Are there some of these strategies that are used? Because, you know, in our literature, a lot of what they're talking about now is these safe, stable, nurturing relationships, Mm -hmm. that it is those, that connectedness is what saves us and gives us resilience. Is there something embedded in what you're talking about that, that supports that, that whole, not a strategy really, but a, a kind of the value of that? Yeah, I think so. I mean, so acceptance and commitment therapy, and now I'm about to get real in the weeds. So (laughs) cut me off if you need to. I got my seatbelt on. (laughs) (laughs) But I mean, really, it is born out of language theory. It's really at its heart, like a linguistics kind of, it's a, it's an evaluation of how language forms. And it's this idea that we are given messages. Every single one of us, all of us are given messages throughout our entire existence. And those messages matter. Those messages are 
the things that built the schemas that help us interpret the world and make decisions and, and do things and solve problems. And again, it's like a tremendous things that our brain does this. So acceptance and commitment therapy is based on this other theory. I'm not going to get super into it of language. It's called relational frame theory, which is at its, at its heart that we have these frames of understanding, which are really like these cognitive schemas, and they get kind of built by our experiences, by the environment, by the messages that we get from our parents, from the media, from our friends, from our communities, from our schools, from all these different people. You get like billions and billions of messages. Some get locked in a lot stronger than others. And then that's how we sort of interpret the world. And some of those frames are more rigid than others. And some of the most powerful frames are like about what's safe and what's not safe what's okay and what's not okay. Am I good? Am I bad? Like those frames get locked into the human experience and like the human brain very strongly. And again, that rigidity is often at the core of human suffering. And so if I grow up in an environment where a lot of the messages are either verbal or like through abuse or through neglect or through other things, if the messages, the verbal messages or the social verbal messages that I'm getting are, you're bad, you're a burden, you're weak, Things you think are safe or not safe. I'm your parent. I'm supposed to be a safe person. I'm not a safe person. You go to school. That's supposed to be a safe place. It's not a safe place. Like when those messages get in and get hardwired, it's really hard. It's really hard to undo them or break them or whatever. And that's why a lot of kids who have these traumatic experiences or adverse childhood effects end up viewing the world and having messages and getting really like tied to messages that are not helpful or healthy. I think what those kind of protective, safe, nurturing relationships do is provide another set of frames that allow for a more flexible interpretation of the world. And there's a lot of kids in this world, unfortunately, who don't end up having that sort of exposure to these different perspectives or this different safe frame, these different safe nurturing, the world is safe, or sometimes it's not, but sometimes it is, you know what I mean? Like more flexible interpretation of the world. And flexibility is really what's sort of at the, the ability to like adapt and shift and, and be okay. Um, and I think a lot of kids who have traumatic experiences learn, learn to do a lot of avoiding because they have to, to survive. And then when they grow up and they're in different situations, they're still sort of always in survival mode because that's the frames that they were taught is survival frames. But if you can intervene and have these, like you're saying, really warm, nurturing, supportive messages to kind of counterbalance that, I think. So I don't know if that Again, I I just gave a very superficial overview of a very complicated um, linguistic theory, but but I think that's what's at the heart of it. And so I think kids are really susceptible to the messages we give. And you know, if you if you, I think again, now I'm sort of changing it. But if you live in a household where the message is, you know, good grades are the only good grades, like A's are the only good grades. Those are frames that get built in and then can generalize to other things. Like there are good things and bad things. And if I do bad things, then I'm a bad person. And if a bad thing happens to me, then that's bad. You know what I mean? All of these things can kind of just like continue to spiral out and become really rigid rules that we live by because we think we need to, to survive. But that's not always true, you know? And I think a lot of what acceptance and commitment therapy is trying to do is not challenge the content, but challenge the frame that makes sense. Well, yeah, the the fact that, you know, maybe maybe an A minus, you know, could you make the frame a little bigger? <laughs> you know, could yeah. you add could yeah. you give space for that, you know? Yeah. What, All right. what would that mean? And I can think of ways that you can almost blend some of the strategies and thinking about grades cuz, you know, that being an overachiever, that was kind of a message for me. But, you know, also that 
you know, you got to be and you didn't die. How did you, how did that, how did that not happen? How did you change your frame about that? You know, yeah. Uh, oh, it's just so interesting. I, I love what you're talking about. It's like so fun. So, I, I mean, I feel like we could do this for a lot longer, <laughs> but so, so what are some, some tangible pearls takeaway that you think, you know, a pediatrician, a pediatric provider out there, I mean, what should we take home from what you're saying? Yeah. I mean, I think what's kind of cool and I would really invite everybody to look more into acceptance and commitment therapy. And, and I can give you some books and things that I think are good places to start or websites that I think are good places to start. But I really think there are things that you can do. The exercises in and of themselves are usually pretty quick and pretty. So just to ask that question of like, okay, I can, like you're saying, holding up the PHK nine, I can tell stuff's going on here. Tell me about it. And if you've got a kid who can tell you about it, you're in good shape. But if you don't, you know, I've got a kid who's like, I can't, that's when you can get into these more like physicalizing metaphors. Or if you can just be like, okay, can we just name it? Can we just give it a name? Let's just call it heavy or sad or lost or hopeless. Let's just call it that. Let's write it on a three by five card. Let's put that three by five card in your pocket. Do five jumping jacks. Give me a high five. Go touch the door. Say something silly. Tell me a joke. Isn't it interesting that you can do all of that stuff with sad, heavy, lost, frustrated, stuck in your back pocket. Those things are there. You know what I mean? But can we, and that take, that took as long as it took me to say that to you, right? Like keep the three by five cards in your office. I think there's some stuff you can do. I don't do this one as much, but when I do it's, it, it does, it's just like funny or when you can enter into a space of humor, it just like changes the, the space. So sometimes I will have people, if we can find a name for whatever it is, if we call it like sad or heavy, I'll say, will you just do something silly with me? Will you just do an experiment? I'm going to set my phone for 45 seconds. And here's what I want you to do. We're going to get into sad and all of that in a second. But can you just picture for me, can you picture a lemon, a lemon that's like bright yellow, it's a lemon wedge and it's juicy and you look at it and I want you to imagine, close your eyes and imagine just taking a big bite out of that lemon. And imagine like the, the muscles in your face tightening and the saliva and the, your tongue, just like, you know, all of it, you just like taste the lemon and you can see kids. They're almost like squirming <laughs> in your description of it. And you're like, okay, cool. So, wow. All I had to do is talk about lemon and you like could feel it. You could feel it in your mouth. You could feel it in your body. You could like taste it, smell it. It was there. All right. Now what I'm going to do, I'm going to set my timer for 45 seconds. And I want us to say lemon out loud to each other as many times as we can at about this volume for the next 45 seconds. And then we do it. We go lemon, 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 lemon. And if you do that for 45 seconds, you like can't, your mouth stops working. You're like, (laughs) and you say, okay, wow. Oh, remember how before the lemon was like juicy and you could like feel it and see it and touch it. And now it feels like it's not even a real thing anymore. Right. How silly is that? We can't even say lemon correctly anymore. It just sounds weird coming out of our mouths. And then I'll say, let's do the same thing with sad or pathetic or loser or lost. Let's say lost or loser or ugly or gross or whatever. Let's say that for 45 seconds straight and see how we feel about it at the end. And again, I'm not saying that's going to like, wow, transform this kid's mood for the next forever. But we took something that felt really awful or felt like, wow, we're getting really deep into it. And we laughed. We laughed about lemon. We talked about it. We like did this silly thing together. And even if kids walk away and they're like, my was dumb. I don't know. Maybe that's kind of cool that we walked away and we, we had like, we did something, we did something different. We played, 
we, we approached it in a different way. We thought that maybe it was pot, maybe it's not possible in that exact experiment, but we thought it was an experiment. Maybe it's possible we could feel different about this. All of those kinds of interventions take minutes. And what's, What's interesting about them is it does, it just sort of like level sets the mood and you're doing something out of the routine, out of the ordinary to just change it up a little bit. And sometimes that's really all it needs to be like, maybe I can try to get out of my room for 10 minutes. Maybe I can try to talk to somebody new at school. I did something silly with my doctor. Like maybe I can do something, you know what I mean? Like it just gives you permission to like, you know, do something. And I think that's sometimes that's what kids need is like permission to do something else. That's not accusatory or challenge, you know? Right. Well, I just, I, I'm stuck on the play and creative piece of it because it just takes this heavy, sticky black blob and sort of, I don't know, there's something kind of fun about it. it just changes how you feel about it. I mean, just listening to you, it's like, you know, I'm, I'm, squirming when I'm thinking about the lemon, like, Ooh, that was so sour. And I mean, you, it's amazing the power of words to do that. Ah, And we're just, we're just sitting here. I'm in a closet and and we're having this fun interplay and it's all words. I mean, I didn't move anywhere, you know? Oh, I love that. It's so experiential. Yeah, exactly. That's exactly right. And so, you know, and like I said, not to be too much about it, but it's been transformer. It's been transformational for me as a human being trying to navigate this world sometimes to do some of this stuff, even for myself. You know what I mean? Like I, I, so I hope you can do it with kids, but I, I will be honest. It's kept me kind of moving in the directions that I value as well. It's funny. My mom used to have, she had a friend who was an alcoholic and, you know, did the AA thing and he gave her as a gift. It was I want to say it was the number nine framed. And I think if I'm getting this wrong, it was basically don't take yourself so damn seriously was and it kind of feels a little bit like don't let this drag you down so much. Can we can we make it less bad? You know, well, that's right. And I think what you were saying is, you know, what you're saying is right. It's all just words, you know. And, and we can, we can sort of decide how we play with words or how we interact with words or what the words are like we, you know, and so I think that if you can get kids to a place of being like, yeah, this is all just like chatter and some of the chatter is helpful and some of the chatter is not. So I'm just going to listen to the helpful stuff and the not helpful stuff. I'm going to kind of like say, okay, thanks brain. I get it. You're doing your job and I'm going to go my homework or whatever, you know, (laughs) I'm going to go play. I'm going to go play. Well, listen, thank you. It is so much fun. It is such a joy to talk to you. I mean, I, I love the um, experience of it. So thank you so much. Me too. It's so fun. Thank you. You're welcome. Take care. And thanks again for joining me. Of course. Oh my gosh. I love this conversation so, so much. I know I say that about every recording, but this is just so fun and new, and I just love the perspective. And she is such an engaging presenter. So here are my takeaways. Number one, everybody gets sad, worried, mad, disappointed, all the emotions. But this is a mind shift that the presence of symptoms are a given. Number two, Impairment follows uncertainty, lack of control, and can then affect function. Depression, anxiety, rage, and all the things can then cascade into, you know, really dysfunction. Number three, cognitive behavioral therapy, CBT, posits that thoughts drive emotion, drive behavior. 
it recognizes that while we may not be able to change or prevent the thoughts, so, you know, they just pop into your head, but we can have power over how we behave by challenging the content of the thought, that is, arguing with the thought. For example, what are the facts? What is the worst thing that can happen? Then what? So, you know, you're worrying about, I'm going to fail a test, I'm, it's going to be awful. So the facts would be, how many tests have you failed? And then challenging that. Number four, acceptance and commitment therapy, or ACT, proposes a process to accept the thought, to name it, feel it, and then how to live with it. The emphasis is on finding what matters to the individual and then finding ways to carry the depression or anxiety and still capture moments of joy, you know, setting it aside. These are baby steps. Number five, Colleen gave the example of trying to hold a beach ball underwater, fighting with the beach ball versus just setting it aside. It's still there, but you're just not engaging with it. And then you go on and and swim and play. Number six, naming the thing. The depression can diminish the power it holds. She gave the example of someone describing that it's looming, dark, sticky, and wants to consume me. It's called pathetic or dread or Bob. And by doing that, it distances the despair. And she talked about diffusion versus fusion. So by naming it, it diffuses versus fusing the feelings. She called it creative hopelessness. Number seven, avoidance is at the heart of suffering. Number eight, some crossovers with mindfulness. So, you know, oftentimes mindfulness teaches that you recognize the thoughts that they're just going to come, but that you name them, just thoughts, just thinking, and then keep breathing, that you're focusing on the breath. The thoughts are there, but you can let them pass like clouds. Number nine, Be curious about the suffering. What does it look like? What does it feel like, smell like? What's the texture? You can really, as she was talking about it, you really could feel it. You you know, when she was talking about the lemon, I mean, I was making a face like it was so sour in my mouth. Number 10, language matters. So those descriptions that are so powerful matter. And can we change the conversation? Can we adopt flexibility in order to find freedom? The monster's there. I can just leave him alone and set him aside in the corner. Turn my back and move on. Number 11, experiences and language create frames around how we behave. We talked about the the frame of I grew up in abuse and so therefore moving forward, I see everything as safe or unsafe. And that by changing what the frame looks like, we can change the behavior and the narrative. Number 12, Pursue what the patient values. So our anticipatory guidance is a scaffold. I mean, there are lots of things that we're supposed to remember to talk to parents about, you know, the helmet, the food, safety, all the things. But if they can just find the rung on the ladder of the scaffold and what patients care about, we're much more likely to make an impact. Number 13, what is most protective and what we all crave is connection and belonging. Those safe, stable, nurturing relationships provide new frames. 
and by changing the narrative from not safe to safe. And that's where we can encourage parents to change behaviors for their own frames that they may have had. And by building their strengths to be those safe, stable, nurturing relationships, they can create new frames for their children. Number 14, in a very few minutes in our offices, we can offer new language, new frames, and then again, strengthen strengthen those safe, stable, nurturing relationships. If you're interested in that whole concept of toxic stress and resilience, take a listen to Andy Garner on episode 56, Bob Saul on episode seven, and Moira Szilagyi's episode on number two, which is just fabulous for more about safe, stable, nurturing relationships and their power. Number 15, thank you to this most incredibly gifted psychologist. We we all want her in our practices, right? Take care and thank you so much for listening. I hope this was fun for you. I mean, I needed a little perk in my day and I just came away from that interview feeling so great and I created a monster for my own my own anxiety. I'm calling her Denise and she is a mean girl. She smells like fried food and stale beer and she is snarling and snarky. So today I'm putting Denise away. So here I am. I hope that you can put aside your creatures and monsters and help our patients identify theirs and set them aside so they can find joy. Take care and have a really great day. I appreciate all that you're doing for kids. I know it's tough out there. So stay tuned and please join me next week. And if you have time, please, please share this podcast with your friends. And if you would take a minute and rate this on Apple or Spotify, it would be really helpful. You can always reach out to me on Instagram at Pediatric Meltdown. You can also find me at L at mbhs. And I would love to hear from you. Take care. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening to this episode of Pediatric Meltdown. In the words of Maya Angelou, do the best you can until you know better. Then when you know better, do better. Let's do better together. This podcast was made possible by the team at Streamlined Podcasts. Music was composed by Connor McHugh and cover art was designed by Alexia Barrero.